I work on building personaldata.io, a service that helps individuals regain control over their personal data, basically exercise all their fundamental rights. So you might have some rights as a U.S. citizen in Europe. For example, with Cambridge Analytica, it turns out that all Americans have the right to ask for their data from Cambridge Analytica, and we're happy to help them do that. Hello, this is Harry Hawk, and this is Talking About Everything. We're here today with mathematician Paul DeHay. Hi. Paul works at the University of Zurich, and he is also a startup entrepreneur working with data privacy. His company is Personal Data IO. Paul, welcome. Thank you. Paul and I have been messaging on Twitter for weeks, and I'm so happy you have time now to have a conversation about data and data privacy. I'm happy to be here. I was hoping you could give everybody just a little bit of background as to why a mathematician is interested in data privacy. So that goes back actually to an experience I had two or three years ago with the introduction of online courses in universities. The realization that very few people were actually aware of problems associated to large-scale data collection, especially in sensitive settings like education. I was already interested before, and I realized that there was really a pressing need for some new solutions and some new advocacy also on the topic. So that's how I became interested in it. It's certainly something, as we've talked about, that fascinates me, and I think yourself as well with your startup, the idea that to some level this is going to happen, but how it happens, people should have a say in it that there needs to be some ethics around it, I believe, you know, very strongly that... I perfectly agree. I, I was at a conference last year called the My Data Conference. So it's around all personal data issues and personal data ownership. The subtext of the conference, the, the subtitle was Make It Happen, Make It Right. And I think that's the perfect summary for the situation we're at right now. We all know that there'll be increased drive towards personalization and profiling, but there is a substantial amount of issues around that. There needs to be a democratic debate around that, definitely. And especially now in the U.S. where they are taking any kind of restrictions that the internet service providers had in terms of accessing the behavior of their individual customers and just selling that. In my mind, you know, the first folks that are going to line up to buy it, it's not going to be the ad advertising agencies or the marketers, but it will be the uh, the police, the FBI. I'm not sure that that would be the case. I mean, they might buy it, but it's much smarter on their side to actually access it after the commercial world has processed that data, has refined it, has built profiles. It's cheaper, right? I mean, you can just go, go grab the work of others and that helps you. I believe you're correct. There is a lot of companies right now that are profiling all kinds of ethnic minorities, alternative lifestyles, however you want to categorize that. The work is already done. So why not go hit there rather than at the raw source of data? I want to play just a little bit of audio. Last week, I spoke with my friend in Romania, uh, Claudio Mariu, and uh, he's a data scientist, and he talks a little bit about how 
there's this tension between the people who are processing the data and the ethical concerns. So I'm going to play that now. What I love about analytics is it's actually what connects the business with the people. Analytics is the data behind the usage, what people actually use. It's their emotions, their activity. Everything is in there. However, the industry is still far from getting to the surface of things. Most of the times we look at metrics. We don't see people. We see metrics. That's what stops companies making the most out of analytics. I always say it's a science, and a science needs a scientist. Most of the people who deal with metrics, with web analytics or business analytics, don't have a science background. One of the persons I truly admire, and I think he's one of the best analysts in the world, is Joseph Karabis. He has a background with psychology, sociology. When you put a person like him in front of the data, magic happens. He built systems that is able to recognize you as a person based on your behavior. Analytics is just an infant right now, actually. A big part of my own theory of the future of advertising is this idea that in digital advertising, digital marketing, we may still have mass markets and segmentation, but we'll have digital mass markets. We'll pick the 50 or 100 million people that we want to reach and work at building relationships with them, entangling them. Uh, like particles in quantum mechanics, but the idea of ultimately establishing a connection that will exist across time and distance, and that over time, by maintaining that entanglement with the brand, the individual will come back as they need, that they're driving the relationship, but the brand is supporting the entanglement. And so it's important in that concept to ultimately know who each user is, when they're anonymous, and across several devices, and then ultimately at the point that the customer chooses to reveal their identity or part of their identity, like their email address, to then back associate with the previously anonymous behavior, and then going forward really working to understand the customer so that they can be supported. Is that at all? similar to what you're thinking about? Yeah, the things you are saying are very dangerous as well. So let me give you an example. In the offline world, let's say you go to, to a store to buy clothes and there is somebody, a shop assistant, I believe you call them, who sees when, when a new customer enters, they judge him based on, is this is a potential customer or not based on different clues? They qualify them. Yeah, they qualify them. And when they believe that it's going to be an opportunity to go talk to the person, they go and do it. And the difference between a good salesperson and a bad salesperson is knowing when to go and talk to the customer. If analytics is going to replace that, yes, that's going to be a very good thing. Things can go much farther than that with analytics. And that's where we need to take a lot of care and probably we'll need an ethics 
organization, or I don't have a solution for this, but definitely this is going to be talked more and more in the future. We see where it can go further. Let's say that behind that salesperson, there is an army of the best psychologists in the world with cameras looking at every detail of the person, knowing his blood pressure, knowing every detail of him, whispering in the headset of the salesperson what to say and when to say it. That we would not find comfortable at all if it would happen in the real world. Agreed. We see clues of it happening right now in the digital world. We've seen it elections. We've seen it in big brands. And we've seen it in advertising agencies who try to do different projects to raise the awareness of the people. It's still a system in the infancy. Definitely the world will make it work well, but we'll also see abuses of it if we haven't already. I'm assuming what Claudio said really resonates with you. Yeah, and I think it's very interesting to see how he frames his argument. You yourself think in terms of relationship between the brand and the individual. Oftentimes that relationship is not fully consensual or it's not balanced for sure. The individual knows a lot less about what the brand is doing than the brand knows about the individual. And the way he frames this argument, the way he gets to the fact that there are problems around this is that he uses first a real life setting. So we have a common ground to think about this. He dumbs down in a way the debate around the technology to the real world to widen that debate, to broaden, to be inclusive. And the second thing he does is that he adopts the viewpoint of the customer entering the store. He doesn't start with the people in the background who are trying to figure out things about the person who just entered the store. He actually talks about the person and their viewpoint. And that's really at the core of ethics. If you think about medical ethics, for instance, there the point is that the patient is in the center. You might be a professional, you might be trained in your domain of knowledge, but it's still important that you consider the individual at the center. So for instance, when you do a procedure on them, you don't just check boxes and make sure they know what the procedure is according to you. You actually ask them, do you understand what the procedure will entail? You really try to adopt their viewpoint. And that's really at the core of ethics, taking the viewpoint of the subject, not of the professional. And I think it's increasingly clear to the generation that is older than myself and even those younger, but certainly the folks who grew up with very little technology, they're really not at all aware of what's happening. The technology is changing so fast. Right. I have several remarks on this. The first is that within organizations, you see the same pattern again and again. You see that the people actually at the executive level don't have an understanding of what's actually happening right now. Those who effectively make decisions or who propose answers are younger, and but they're not the ones making decisions. So I'll give you an example. In my case, with online courses, university presidents don't understand the web. They're still making significant moves for their own industry, quote unquote, to move onto the web. And there might be younger folks who are not tenured who tell them this is a mistake in the way you are doing it, but they're not being listened to or it's very hard. That's one aspect that I think is really uh, happening across industries. And the second thing 
And that was very, very significant with all the, the story with the election and Cambridge Analytica, which I'm sure we'll get into a, a tiny bit. Even the professional population has little awareness of what is actually possible. It turns out that very small new inventions can have a very significant effect. So in the case of Cambridge Analytica, it was just one research group, one research paper that really led to complete new opportunities of profiling that were used just a couple of years later at country scale, at the whole scale of the U.S. Those are, are very significant factors. Paul, why don't you tell us what you understand about Cambridge Analytica? I'm imagining a good deal of my audience has probably heard of them, but maybe even already they've faded from memory. <laughs> I've actually been very involved in getting the story out. I've been researching them for more than a year, and I've contacted many journalists and tried to raise awareness about this. Lots of articles I was involved. What they actually did is that they repurposed research that was done at Cambridge University in profiling individuals on psychographic scales based on Facebook likes. So that's sort of like the ultimate jump in the domain of understanding of a person where just their tiny bits of behaviors online can be used to infer information about deep psychological traits. They've realized that this technology existed in 2014 that was developed just a couple years earlier, even just one year earlier. They scaled it within just a couple years. It was used in the 2016 elections. How it was used for which campaigns and the degree of accuracy that they reached, those are all unsolved questions. We don't really know. There are denials going all around. There are contradictions to the denials going all around. It's very hard to say, but certainly you can see the path that this technology took and how fast it was used very large scale. Certainly it will only improve. It's the nature of you know those big data techniques that you collect more and more data and with time they improve. So it's very unfortunate that they've already faded away from the public consciousness because it might not have been that useful this time around, but next time around it will be used by everyone. I'm certainly concerned with what they've done, what they've claimed to have done, because I am, I've always been interested in the idea of the push-pull, the idea that you can call somebody up claiming to be a researcher or claiming some kind of neutrality and then by the questions that you ask people, essentially trigger them into changing their mind or perhaps crystallizing their views into support for a particular candidate. And I should be clear here, I don't believe that this is at all ethical, and nor do I believe that this should be an effective uh, marketing tactic. But I believe relative to Cambridge Analytica, and similar organizations working with the political candidates in the U.S. Uh, during the last election cycle, that they may have found ways to sort of, on Facebook or other places, to sort of use memetics, use memes to push people not only towards uh, certain positions, but then also use the audiences that they're creating when they're able to record the reactions the engagement of people around those memes and then other posts and articles to then feed across different organizations that may not legally be
be able to interact with each other, such as political action committees and candidates. If you scale back a bit in the corporate structure of Cambridge Analytica, like the parent company is called SCLs for Strategic Communication Laboratories. And that company and its affiliates was also involved in Brexit, in the Brexit campaign. And there it's especially clear that they've used these complex instruments and these complex corporate structures to both circumvent electoral rules on financial con contributions, but also on collaboration between different political action committees and specifically around the use of data. So basically data flowed between and segmentation presumably flowed between different groups that were supposed to be independent and not collaborating. That's a very interesting angle to me. And the second angle is that SCL, so this parent company, has a history in psyops, in psychological operations in the military. It really does three things. It does military stuff, it does electoral stuff, and it does commercial stuff. They've conceptualized what they are doing at a quite high level. So both at the strategic level, thinking of their audience, and also at a sort of tactical level, how to spread our own messages. So Facebook and, and psychological profiling is just one part of the tactics they use. They've also conceptualized how we can enter feedback the most effectively in the tools they are using. The techniques they've been using are far from ethical in some circumstances. In electoral contexts, they'll go and they'll do things that would not work in the commercial world. It would be very dangerous in the military world. But they do those things, and it's sort of a uniform corporate structure behind it. It's very hard to see where the ethics of this company actually is. Can you give an example? So outside of marketing or outside of Facebook, there, there are allegations that are substantiated by SCL itself. I think it was in Trinidad and Tobago in the Caribbean. They were advising for a presidential election. Their advice was to send people to put graffiti on the walls so that they could pretend that there was youth oppressed. And so their candidate could come up with a solution for this uprise that was fabricated, essentially. So that's one example. Generally, in election campaigns, you can do more because that's the way those are run. This is sort of the ultimate push-pull, right? You create out of nowhere the very publicly visible issue so that you can react to it and you can look good as a reaction. In politics, the mythical or not-so-mythical false flag action, sabotaging peace talks, to literally fake news and then using that to drive national attitudes and electoral responses. That does sound like military psychops. Yeah, and the fascinating thing is that they really profit from all sides because they train NATO troops on how to counter Russian disinformation, what they classify as propaganda. They also train against ISIS recruitment tactics. They have a role in the military that's presumably good and trying to do good things and not necessarily you know, lying to populations or anything. But they definitely learn a lot from countering those techniques. And that experience, to me at least, it looks like they are reusing in the electoral, in the electoral world, but on the other side. They're much more aggressive. So to show you an example, someone from the alt-right will go and write a paper about mimetic warfare for their publication. And as a mean to counter Russian propaganda, but of course, mimetic warfare can also be used in a completely different context in elections by some different political factions. They really play 
in all different sites. And it's quite confusing and alarming when you dig deeper into it. It's only amplified by the fact that Facebook, for instance, makes it very hard to know who a message comes from or how the message travels around and which organic messages Facebook decides to amplify or to just smother. I want to make sure that this really gets out to everybody. So please do not share this. Please copy this and paste this into a post. And I think it does the exact opposite. Disassociate from people who are crafting and pushing out a message. And it isolates the message, but it, it isolates it uniquely around very small cohorts. All of your friends may see it if they're looking to track like you would an infection that you can see how the ideas are spreading. You're, you're hinting at something, but I don't quite agree with the way you, you formulated. Please so agree. <laughs> Facebook has a lot of intelligence wrapped into it. Right? So it's trying to figure out which message should go viral, and it's making those messages go viral. It doesn't necessarily have much agency beyond that. I do think that taking a, a post and copy-pasting into a separate post on Facebook, asking people to do that, is a very effective way to getting that message to travel around widely. I can explain that in a second. Of course, that can be asked with many different goals in mind. Part of the agency is delegated to Facebook into intelligence that is embedded into Facebook. Part of the agency is retained by the individuals who actually do the action. They might have many different motivations to do that. Why do I sus suspect that it's probably effective to copy-paste a post into a separate Facebook message? Because when I was precisely tracking myself how viral those Cambridge Analytica articles were, a very good indication for me was not that very early on, was not that a certain post would get a high number of of shares, it was not the, the curve that that post was getting. It was part of the indication. But the other indication that was very significant was that lots of people would start cross-feeding social networks, that a message that they saw on Twitter would suddenly get posted on Facebook, or that a message on Facebook would suddenly get posted on Reddit. I was tracking obsessively the progress of all those stories Definitely the number one marker of how viral a post will go is the number of, of social networks it opt on. That's why I'm not quite in agreement with you on this. Well, I certainly agree as it jumps across networks, that can be significant transaction when people are sharing it and then the weight of all of the likes and comments are sort of accruing to that. It may be more or less the same. It creates an interesting dynamic because this is down to design decisions by Facebook engineers, essentially. They'll design a system and then there's a bunch of humans that use Facebook that will try to game it. Sometimes they'll manage. And so it's an interesting dynamic to see when do the Facebook engineers think there is maybe a problem and that the original system doesn't perform as they expected. When will they change it? It's also an issue of power here. It reminds me of a post that were happening around the time that Facebook was monetizing. People were telling people to basically go in and ch change their privacy settings so that people couldn't see what they were doing. They didn't quite say it like that. And then around that same time, there's a report that, you know, reach on Facebook is sort of dropping. 
I don't necessarily put those two together, but people wrote these very emotional posts that were people were following like uh, Dear Abby, like a advice columnist. The actions that they were encouraging them to take would not really have the effect that they were being told. Right. Those posts are very interesting to me. I see very well those you are referring to because it shows that people want this. They want some more control, but Facebook is effectively not offering those controls sometimes when it really hurts their bottom line. That's the system that Facebook designed, and actually they are operating within certain laws. And so my standpoint, you know, with my startup is to just extract the exercise of those rights from the platforms themselves and go through the legal route. And of course, to bring a lot of technology to help that to lots of people to really exercise those rights outside of the structure imposed by the platform. I'm really intrigued by your startup. hope that we're going to really have some deep conversations about that. But I'd, I'd love you to explain that a little bit more. Essentially, to me, it's almost like um, genetic uh, research where you're taking the DNA from one thing and transferring to something else. But in your case, you're taking or looking to take what one organization has learned about somebody and with that person's permission take that knowledge and allow both your company but the individual to then profit from what was learned yeah that's part of the possibilities i think the most relevant information to your listeners is that there are big changes coming in law in europe in 2018 and those will have an impact for any company, wherever it's located, that's marketing to Europeans. So even if you're working for a U.S. company, but some of the customers are European, you're making an active effort to reach to Europeans. It will be relevant to you. It's basically improving enforcement, extending territoriality, making huge fines, like bringing in place huge fines up to 20 million euros. One of the rights that it gives to individuals is the so-called right to portability. So that will be the right to take your data from one service and take it somewhere else, to another service. Many people think when they hear that, that it's just a matter of taking your pictures from Facebook and putting them on LinkedIn. But I think it actually opens a lot more opportunities to extract value from data in much more nimble groups, in much more nimble startups. And it really helps extract more value from data and ultimately will give more control to individuals, which is all good things. So my startup is really focused on helping people exercise that right, that particular right of shifting data around. I want to make it as concrete as possible. I'm sitting on a chair now, but if I want to change a light bulb, I could step up on the chair and change the light bulb and no one would come and tell me you can't do that. They could say so, you're violating their patents. Right. I want that data to be mine and I want it to be able to repurpose it as however I want. I want to combine it with other data. I want to create new services around that. I want people to be able to create new services for me around my data coming from many sources, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And actually in 2018, I'll have all those rights. The question is, how do you actually exercise those rights when often the other companies will be hostile to that idea? And so that's what I want to focus on. It's a fantastic idea, Paul to both help somebody take control of their own data, which to some degree today means being able to take control of your own life. The conversation about it as your company starts to market its services, it has to 
through that process, actually educate people about the problem. In the good hands, marketing can have a very uh, positive impact. At the risk of expanding a bit the, the conversation, I want to explain a bit to marketers why the problem is wider than in their direct sphere of operation, let's say. They're using tools that are clearly very powerful at tracking people. Most of the time, they won't see a single name going through it. So they might be happy to say that this is just anonymous information. There is no breach in privacy and so on and so on. And that actually might be true. But the real problem is when you imagine the circle and the circle was very effectively summarized by Claudio. It's someone entering into a store, a bunch of people talking behind a screen, and then that information getting back to the salesperson and the salesperson approaches the individual. So there is this whole circle of information with lots of people, intermediaries that might just know identifiers, but not pseudonymous identifiers, but not the actual person. But the problem is really in the ultimate interaction, is who gets offered things, who doesn't get offered things. This data can be used to open opportunities, but equally can be seen as limiting opportunities for some individuals. All across the chain, mistakes are made everywhere. It's normal. Nothing's perfect. No system's perfect. But sometimes those mistakes systematically affect individuals. And that's a problem for those individuals, obviously. It's not good if you're always in the 20% that the system doesn't really help. The system's only good for 80% of the people and you systematically end up in the wrong end. Well, you are not going to be happy. And so I see my tool as helping those people as well to get back their data and to use that data for advocacy for themselves. And that's a much wider issue, you know, with automation and with increasing artificial intelligence in in society, that's going to be an increasing issue that goes way beyond marketing or advertising. Spot on. The debate will only intensify us. I'd like to wrap this up here. I think we're at a really good point. Hope that you can find more time in the future for us to delve into more of these issues. There's so many different things that I'd love to talk to you about. Sure. I mean, I would be pleased to. Please pitch out the website for your company. I work on building personaldata.io, which will be a service that helps individuals regain control over their personal data, basically exercise all their fundamental rights in the online space. Obviously, the web is the web, so you might have some rights as a U.S. citizen in Europe when the controller is in Europe. For example, with Cambridge Analytica, it turns out that all Americans have the right to ask for their data from Cambridge Analytica, and we're happy to help them do that. This is Harry Hawk, and you have been listening to Talking About Everything and our conversation about data with Paul DeHay. Uh, Paul, again, thank you so much for taking time out of your evening to chat with me. And I hope you and everybody listening has a great week. Bye-bye. Bye. Have a good Sunday. Bye. My name is Chuck Fresh, and I am being paid to thank you for listening to Talking About Everything with Harry Hawk. Harry wants to hear from you on Twitter at hhawk or harryhawk at gmail.com. And now, a word from our sponsor, life extension coach and favorite chef. Hawk Digital Marketing is focused on bringing brands and people together. We build communities of interest based on trust and transparency where consumers and brands can converse, learn, discuss, or solve problems together while creating a long-term connection entanglement between you and your customers 
Once connected, we help you engage, communicate, sell, present, educate, and inform. Evolve your communications with us. HawkSocialMarketing.com